Welcome back, and thank you for joining me again this week for The Devil Came Knocking. In this week's episode, we are going to cover what happened between the time the six left Payne Hollow Lane after the murders until they were returned to Tennessee after being captured at the Mexico and Arizona border. Before we get started, I want to encourage everyone to follow The Devil Came Knocking Facebook page. I will be posting a lot of evidence pertaining to this episode there this week. And I'm also happy to announce the podcast got its first sponsor this week, and I would like to thank Anchor for their support. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can do that with a monthly subscription of $1, 5 or $10 directly through the link on Spotify. Or if you would just like to just make a one-time donation, you can cash at me at capital D. A-W-G, capital N, A-T-I-O-N, O-3. This will help us buy new equipment as well obtain copies of evidence that we use to put this podcast together. Some of the places charge as much as 15 cents per copy and getting the evidence can sometimes get expensive. With that out of the way, let's jump into this week's episode. The six would leave Payne Hollow Lane in the Lily Lids van. In their rush to leave the scene, they left behind one key piece of evidence, the little blue Chevy. It was clear to investigators the Lily Lids had not been at the scene alone, as Delfina and Vidar both had tire tracks across their bodies from where Joe had ran them over leaving the scene. Joe had ripped the license plate off the car, but investigators would use the VIN number of the car to trace it back to Joe's mom. The teenagers were then identified and the manhunt was on. The plan to go to New Orleans would change once the group left the scene. As Jason told the group, Natasha's mom knew they were going to New Orleans. Jason thought if they made it into Mexico, he could not be punished for his crimes. So with Joe driving, the group set off for Mexico. Here's Joe testifying during sentencing. Remember while listening to this that he ran over the family with the van while leaving the scene. Multiple co-defendants, including his girlfriend Karen Howe, said he meant to do this. While Joe claims it was an accident, that he had never driven a vehicle that big before. During the night, the group would pull into a Waffle House. Jason and Joe would force the group to even go to the bathroom as a whole. They had good reason to keep their eye on the others as there were cops in the restaurant that night. You heard Crystal's account of this encounter. You will hear Karen and Dean's accounts in the next few weeks. The group would continue to drive through the deserts of the Southwest and would eventually make it into Mexico. The group did not know it but this would be their last moments on earth where they would not be locked behind bars. 
According to Roger Maller, a former U.S. Customs Service agent, in an interview with Six Eyewitness News, once you're in Mexico, you cannot travel more than 12 miles into the interior of the country without certain immigration documents. The group would hit a checkpoint and be escorted back to the border. While driving through Mexico, Jason was shot. Jason claims Joe shot him. The rest of the group say Jason shot himself. A couple of weeks ago, we left out one paragraph of Crystal's statement so we would not spoil the episode today. So we're going to read it now. Someplace in Arizona, we were at a truck stop. Natasha and Jason were talking about robbing it and killing the cashier. I panicked. I started crying. I threw up. Joe told them it didn't feel right, and finally Natasha agreed we would leave. She told me outright that she would rob and kill again to keep from getting caught. Later that day, we crossed the border. In New Mexico, there was nothing. Miles of desert and emptiness. At one point, a police car was behind us. Jason got one of the guns and was saying stuff about killing the cop. He tried to force an extra bullet into the gun and it went off. It shot him through the hand and the leg. Someone tied a rag around it. Joe was driving and pulled over. They stuffed both guns into the seat cushion. We were arrested later that day trying to get back into the U.S. The group would be caught when an agent at the border ran the tag on the van and the bolo out of Tennessee popped up. This is one part of the story former DA Berkeley Bell likes to exaggerate. He says the system used to run the tags at the border had not worked all day, but came up just as the van came through. He stated in a previous interview it was the hand of God coming down to catch the teens. The border agent stated, however, that the system had been working all day, but was only working when it wanted to. One agent would ask Joe who owned the vehicle. He shrugged and said, I don't know. The six would be taken from the point of entry to Douglas, Arizona, where they were housed until they were extradited back to Tennessee. Officials in Tennessee were called and they advised Arizona to retain custody of the six and the van. However, they were advised not to interrogate the group, so no Miranda warnings were given. The six were all booked and their clothes were taken for evidence. Several members of the group had property that belonged to the Lily Lid family. The prosecution would paint this as trophies from the killings. Crystal had a spare set of keys to the van, carrying a Hello Kitty lock that belonged to Tabitha, Natasha had a wallet with a photo of Tabitha and also a piece of Vidar's belt inside. At the Kosh County Jail, the booking officer reportedly asked Natasha her religious preference. Satan was her response. Several other statements were made in Arizona, and I will read these to you now. I will also post these on my social media so that you can see them for yourselves.
Joe Reisner. After being put in a cell, the defendants were routinely checked on on a suicide watch. On such a check, the officer saw Reisner sitting in a chair in the middle of the cell with his head in his hands resting in his lap. The officer saw no movement and tapped on the cell door. According to the officer, Reisner raised his head, looked at him and said, I'm a killer. The officer says Reisner talked in a deep voice and stared at him with unblinking open eyes. Later, that same officer was at his desk just a short distance from the cell in which Reisner was being held. The officer says Reisner knocked on his cell door, and when the officer responded, Reisner asked if the officer thought they would give him the death penalty for this. The officer told him he didn't know. Dean Mullins during routine booking procedures, Defendant Mullins asked the booking officer what he thought would happen to him. The officer said he didn't know. Mullins asked what usually happens to people who have done what i done. The officer said he couldn't tell him. It is also reported that Dean volunteered that they had stolen the van to go to Mexico, that they went through the people's pockets for money for gas, and that he didn't think they were dead and that he didn't want to kill anyone. The officer reportedly told Dean he should have left or tried to help the people. Dean said he had a gun, but didn't use it. Dean would later volunteer the people were crying, and he told them to shut up. He said that he wasn't on drugs, that he remembered it all, and that he wished they hadn't done that to those people. Karen Howe. While waiting to be booked, an officer waiting with her, who said he didn't know what she was charged with, asked her what she was there for. Howe responded she was accused of killing some people in Tennessee. She said she was present when they were killed, but that she did not kill anyone. She said she knew they were dead, but she didn't kill anyone. The officer asked her how that made her feel and Karen said that she didn't do anything. Jason Bryant. Jason would be seen by paramedics because of his gunshot wounds. Bryant reportedly told the EMTs that the wounds were from a 22 caliber weapon and volunteered that he was only defending himself and that's why he shot back. He said the wounds were two to three days old. The paramedic says that Jason gave him an incorrect birthday. While in the ambulance, he said he didn't want to go back to Tennessee because he knew he would fry in the electric chair even though he was a juvenile. Bryant would tell the booking officer at the detention center that he shot in self-defense that the victims were trying to rob him. He would tell another officer while being strip searched that he killed some people because they were trying to kill him. He would then tell another juvenile in the detention facility in great detail how he committed the murders and then shot himself to try and claim self-defense. 
I will post all these, like I said, to my social media, but I encourage you to go read Jason's as it goes into great detail, especially when he's talking to the other juvenile about the crimes. While the six were being held in Arizona, the four adults would be appointed a public defender, Yvonne Ayers, to represent them in an extradition hearing. All four would waive extradition before a judge, and although she was only appointed to represent them in the extradition hearing, she would try to protect them from possible interrogation by Tennessee law enforcement officers. The TBI would have Dean moved to the library and were in the process of reading him his rights when Miss Ayers come in. After an exchange, the officers left the library and after speaking with Dean privately, she approached the officers and asked what they wanted. They told her they believed Dean was not a shooter and were willing to offer a deal to take the death penalty off the table if he would tell them where the weapons were. Miss Ayers confirmed this with DA Bell who added the condition that Dean must have not been a shooter in order to get the deal. Miss Ayers then returned to the library to speak to Dean. When she emerged, she gave officers a drawing done by Dean. The officers used this and were able to locate the guns just where he said they would be. Dean would hold up his end of the deal, but the DA would later revoke the deal. I questioned Berkeley Bell about this you can hear his response now. There was, according to Steve Owens, uh, who was Dean's attorney. Yeah, out of uh, Kentucky. Kentucky. Um, I spoke with him actually the other day. He actually told me. Is he to, still practicing law? He is. He told me to tell you hi. Yeah. And um, he said he spoke very highly of you in your office, said you all were really nice and provided them, yeah. provided them everything they needed. There was a plea deal offered to Dean while they were still in Arizona, according to Steve. Do you know why that plea deal was revoked? It was for the guns. He, they, apparently, Dean was offered a deal where the death, table, death penalty was took off the table if he gave up the guns, and the plea deal was later revoked. Do you have any idea why? I seen some stuff in the paperwork up here at the courthouse about what'd you it. See, what'd you see? But it was it just said that there was some kind of an agreement and it was terminated. It didn't really go into any specifics on anything and Steve Owens is actually the one that said that it was a deal that Dean had made where he testified and gave up where the guns were located or he something. Didn't give them up. I will be releasing more of my conversation with Mr. Bell over the next few weeks. I cannot release this whole conversation as there is parts of it that he asked me not to release to the public. I'll let you decide how you feel about Mr. Bell, but you will see it becomes a common theme that he does not recall the biggest case of his career. Mr. Bell actually revoked Dean's plea deal because he said he could not prove that Dean was not a shooter. He also couldn't prove that Dean was a shooter, and almost all evidence says he wasn't. 
Mr. Bell has said repeatedly that Jason Bryant is the only one he can prove was a shooter. Although he likes to follow up that statement with his theory about all six participating in the killings, which he knows is a lie because we have all seen the gunshot residue report. This concludes our episode for this week, and I hope you will join us again next week. Next week, we will begin to introduce the lawyers that handled the case, and I will have some interviews with some more of the family members of the six that were involved. Thank you for listening this week, and I hope you will join us again next week.